This is the Dialogue Journal podcast series. Hello, and welcome to another Dialogue podcast. This time we're thrilled to present the award-winning humor columnist for the Salt Lake Tribune, Robert Kirby. I'm your host, Morris Thurston, chair of the board of directors of Dialogue Foundation, publishers of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. If you enjoy these podcasts, we hope you will consider supporting us by subscribing to the journal and by making a tax-deductible contribution to Dialogue Foundation. You can contribute online by going to dialoguejournal.com and clicking on the Donate button in the right-hand column. This presentation by Robert Kirby was given to the Orange County section of the Miller-Eccles Study Group on November 15, 2013. I know you'll enjoy it. Tonight we have a speaker that is probably more famous than any of the ones from next year. Robert Kirby. He is distinct from all the rest of them because he doesn't have a doctor in front of his name. But he is he began his career as a policeman. And as he explained to me earlier today, he started out his creative writing by writing police reports. Uh, and I can I would love to read some of Robert's police reports. Uh, <laughs> he told us some stories, but I won't tell you those. He might want to tell them himself. But, of course, knowing his personality, the, the reports tended to be humorous, and eventually he began writing freelance columns that were also humorous. And finally, it, it turned to writing about Mormon subjects and a full-time job with the Salt Lake Tribune, where I'm sure that everyone here has read his delightful work. He's written a lot of classic columns. Among my favorites was his 13 Particles of Faith. They're worth looking up on the internet if you haven't read them. I just There's a couple i got to share with you, because I, I so agree. Article 4, I believe that the first principles and ordinances of the LDS Church are boring speakers, meetings that last forever, music that sounds like whale sonograms, food storage gone bad, and idiotic bickering over caffeine and movie ratings. <laughs> and then there's Article 8. I believe the Bible and the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God so far as I can personally translate them correctly, <laughs> which I try not to do because it scares me. Or Article 11. I claim the privilege of worshiping the Almighty God according to it being none of your blankety-blank business and allow all men the same privilege except for megachurch pastors, self-help gurus, and some cannibals. <laughs> so without further ado, I'll give you Robert Kirby. So do you think I need the microphone? Should I use it? No. Yes? No? No. No. no? no, okay. Well, if I start to run out of gas... You let me know. I feel like one of those 7-Eleven hot dogs. <laughs> the, last, the last thing my wife said before I came up here was, be nice. <laughs> We've been together for 38 years, and she knows that every single one of my claustrophobic alerts is going off right now. I'm not supposed to be doing this. I'm supposed to be a retired policeman, 
going pleasantly to pieces on a porch somewhere. And how I got here is, is still a little strange to me today. I came home from an LDS mission in the mid-70s and became a police officer uh, out in Tooele County. For those of you who aren't familiar with Utah, um, Tooele County is where God practiced making people before he got really good at it. <laughs> and uh, Also terrain. <laughs> It's like Utah's Appalachian. I can say that because my brother's a police chief out there. But it was an interesting transition to go from being a missionary, uh, unemployed carpenter, to a police officer almost overnight. And uh, there was I had to have the, I had to go through this huge shift in dealing with people. And I gained this real appreciation for what it must have been like for the Roman centurions who patrolled the streets of Jerusalem back during the time of Christ and that you're enforcing laws on God's chosen people and it really isn't working out as well as you might hope. <laughs> One of the first experiences I had was I arrested this guy for drunk driving right after we moved out to uh, Tula County and uh, had to fight him and we went down in this ditch and I finally got on top and put the handcuffs on him and I sat behind him in priesthood couple days later. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of the shift that I had to make. But I learned some interesting things about human beings that I brought to the uh, issue of, of being a columnist. I consider what I do as a, as a newspaper columnist to be little more than going out on idiot safari. A lot of times I don't even agree with what I'm saying. It's just the noise I use to drive the game out into the open. <laughs> it's, it's amazing how well it works. Um, because people tend to take themselves way too seriously. Uh, one of the first things I learned as a police officer is that if I kept a perfectly straight face when I was in uniform, I could say virtually anything to the public and they'd believe it. Uh, and... That's a lot of power to give a guy like me. <laughs> I pull people over for speeding and walk up to the window of the car and I say, I need to see your driver's license, your registration, and all your major credit cards. <laughs> and it was astonishing how many people would give them to me. <laughs> thinking, yeah, this is Tula County, but still. Um, and I take them and say, we're just checking credit limits today. Yours are fine. You're free to go. <laughs> And because it was Utah, they were so happy to be in compliance with authority, they wouldn't, they wouldn't even question that. They'd say, oh, thanks, and goodbye. And you know later they're going to be going, wait a minute. That's not right. But by then I'd already gotten the fun out of it, and there was nothing they could do about it. Uh, later I moved to Utah County. Uh, I was a police officer there for 10 years, and we would run roadblocks looking for drunk drivers. If you've never been through a DUI checkpoint before, it's supposed to come as a surprise. You don't want drunks seeing them off down the road and turning around and leaving before you get a chance to have some fun with them. So you hold them around bends in the road or places where they don't really see them until they actually kind of drive right into them. And because... All they know is they come around the corner and here's the cops doing stuff with these lights and barricades. 
And uh, because they come as a surprise, they tend to be stressful even to people who haven't been drinking. And so they would pull through the roadblock and get to my station and roll down the window. They say that thing that people always say to the police, you know, what's going on, officer? Uh, I tell them, we're looking for Democrats. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was Utah County, they'd say, well, hell, we don't even know any Democrats. (laughs) We sure hope you catch them, though. So those were the sorts of things that I would do, and some other stuff I can't tell you about, that made the job of being a police officer a little less psychologically stressful. When you're a cop, you get to see and do a lot of pretty horrific things on a fairly regular basis. And if you don't find some way to deal with it um, that allows you to manage it and even compartmentalize it uh, effectively, you're going to have a lot of trouble. I learned that there was a second reason why we've been given a sense of humor as a, as a species, and that's the physical reason. Researchers at Loma Linda University back in 96 documented all of the positive physical benefits that go on with you when you laugh, and not the least of which is that your body actually goes through kind of a mini aerobic workout uh, because your muscles flex, your blood gets pumping a little quicker. Because it's going quicker, you can think faster, although not necessarily better. (laughs) And your body increases production of things like T lymphocytes and gamma interferon, which tends to, you know, fight off disease. And it proves the old adage that people who laugh a lot tend to be healthier than people who don't. But the very best thing about laughter is something called beta endorphins. Beta endorphins... They're the body's own natural morphine. It's produced in your brain, and your brain will pump your bloodstream full of this natural morphine when you're highly stressed or badly hurt, and it's intended to have a calming effect on us to keep us from going into shock. Your body also cranks out these beta endorphins when you laugh, which is one of the reasons why we like to do it so much is because we're actually getting high doing it. And the really cool part is they can't pee test for that. So you can abuse them all you want There's nothing anybody can do about them But If you abuse beta endorphins Through the act of laughter It kind of has the same effect As being addicted to Crack or heroin In that you need an increasing amount Of those to maintain the same level Of high or funny that you like And if you're addicted to Illegal drugs that's when you start breaking Into places and robbing people But if you're addicted to beta endorphins through laughter, that's when you start saying stuff you shouldn't. (laughs) I stopped this guy for speeding one day. He knew why he was being stopped. He had everything ready for me when I walked up to the car. And he gave me his driver's license and his registration. But then he also handed me his LDS temple recommendations, (laughs) which I thought was really clever. I had one too, so I wasn't impressed. I figured, hey, if I could get one. (laughs) but it was the first time it had ever happened and so it kind of caught me off guard I took it back to the patrol car and I wrote him a ticket for speeding and then on his temple recommend I wrote void (laughs) (laughs) I still wish I had a picture of his face when I gave that back to they're actually, I mean, if you've never had one before, and I assume most of you have, it's 
the people whose job at the temple it is to look at them, make sure they're valid, have no sense of humor about it. <laughs> if it says void, they don't care who wrote it there. You ain't getting in. <laughs> so he's pretty mad, and about a half hour later, so was his stake president. <laughs> and about ten seconds after that, so was his stake patriarch, who happened to be my police chief. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got two days off without pay for that one. <laughs> Still funny, though. <laughs> it was right about then that I realized that police work and I weren't really a good fit. And that was a difficult decision to come to because that's what my family does. My father was a police officer. My brothers are cops. I have a lot of nephews who are police officers. And if you go to my father's house, he has pictures of us in our uniforms all over his house. He'll pull you in off the street and give you a tour. So I was a little nervous when I decided that I was going to leave, and it took me a while to get up the courage to tell him. And when I finally did, he actually took it really well. He said, uh, well, it's probably for the best because, kid, you really think too much. And he's probably right. Uh, because I'd been driving around in my car one night, smarting from this suspension that I got for some months I did that I can't tell you about. Um, when I had this epiphany, like literally like a light shining out of heaven, when I realized suddenly that, hey, I can shoot people. <laughs> Seriously, I had a gun and everything. And I could also beat them up and take them to jail and kick the doors of their houses in and impound their cars. I could take their kids away from them. In short, if the right set of circumstances were there, I could do virtually anything that needed to be done, with the exception of one thing, and that was to insult the public to its face. That was considered to be very unprofessional, and I always got into trouble when I did it. Unfortunately, that was the only part of police work I was really good at. <laughs> and so I left and uh, got into the a business that will actually pay you to do it. <laughs> I went to work for a very small newspaper in Utah County, and I pitched them the idea of writing a, a column written by an actual police officer. At the time I did this, I was still a cop. And uh, I said, I'll, I'll write a column under a pseudonym, because I was still a police officer, and basically explain why police officers do the things they do when they interact with the public. And the publisher of the paper said, well, tell me what the theme of this column would be uh, in a sentence. I wasn't prepared for that, so I just said the first thing that popped into my head, and that was, cops hate you, here's why. <laughs> <laughs> and they took it. <laughs> I, wrote, I wrote that thing for like seven years before I could stop doing it. But it got my foot in the door of the, of the newspaper, and my goal at that time was that I would just, they would teach me how to write, and uh, I'd learn it by doing it and writing articles and color pieces and the news and that sort of thing. I hadn't been at the newspaper very long when the editor approached me one, one afternoon and said, the editorial that we had ready to go for tomorrow's paper has fallen through, and we need you to come up with one really quick if you can because the press is waiting. He said, can, can you do that? And I said, yeah, I, I can do that. 
Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the world of newspapers, an article or a story is intended to be a basic recitation of fact. You lay out the elements of something and let the readers make up their own minds about what that means. Uh, and that differs from a column in that a column is personal opinion of whatever person wrote it. And those two differ from an editorial in that an editorial written by someone at the paper for publication in the paper is generally understood that it's the paper's official position on a given subject. I didn't know that. <laughs> so I sat down and I hammered out this thing titled Five Kinds of Mormons. <laughs> it was my theory that of all the millions of Mormons in the world, there are only five basic types. There are um, liberal Mormons, there are genuine Mormons, and there's like eight of them or so, <laughs> conservative Mormons, Orthodox Mormons, and Nazi Mormons. <laughs> and I explained how to recognize the various type of Mormon. I actually figured this was a public service. <laughs> it just seemed to me like you ought to know who you were dealing with. Turned it in and went home. And the editor called me later that night and said, uh, what the hell is the matter with you? <laughs> I said, I asked him why, and he said, well, this isn't very nice. And I said, well, it's all I got. <laughs> so you better not run it. But he did, and it was in the paper the next day when I went to work with a picture of me next to it. <laughs> and um, I was sitting there reading it, um, because I like to make sure that they get it exactly right the way that I wrote it, because I, I believe it's better to be hated for what you are than loved for what you're not. If I'm going to get fired, I want it to be because of something I actually did. And I was sitting there reading it when the doors of the newsroom burst open, and in marched the publisher of the paper. And being the latter category of Mormon, <laughs> he, had, he had this Darth Vader music playing behind him as he came in. And he went over to the editor, and he, in a voice that you could hear through the entire newsroom, and proceeded to yell at him about the bad journalistic sense it was to make fun of Mormons like this in the middle of Utah County, which is kind of like the Tehran of Utah. <laughs> and he predicted we were going to get really angry letters to the editor, and he was right, because he went back up to his office and wrote the first one. <laughs> so in the next issue of the paper, there was a letter to the paper's editor from the paper's publisher telling all of the paper's readers what an idiot one of the paper's writers was. And that was pretty bad, but something else even worse happened, and that was it was the only bad letter we got. <laughs> all of the rest of the mail about five kinds of Mormons basically told the publisher to get over himself, that they liked this kind of humor about the culture that they were either a part of or stuck in and wanted more of it. Uh, two things occurred to me as a result of that. One was that suddenly I realized there's a market for the for this stuff I thought about while I was in church. <laughs> And second was that I needed a new job, <laughs> because when I wouldn't stop doing it, they fired me. The Tribune picked me up right away, though, go figure. 
and I've been doing it ever since. And I've learned some interesting things about human beings and our beliefs, our beliefs in our sacred cows. Before I go any further, I want you to understand that I don't think it's bad that we have sacred cows. I believe if you're a rational, normal person that you should have something in your life that you reverence greater than yourself. Now, it can be your faith in God or your religion, uh, as the word sacred implies, but sacred really means whatever it is that you hold most dear. And that can be your politics, your career, your hobbies, your family, whatever, something that you focus on. It isn't that we have sacred cows that causes us the problem. It's the degree to which we focus on them, quite often to the exclusion of everything else. And we can get a little carried away with that. One of the first things I learned when the Tribune turned me loose was that there were people who actually needed permission to be able to laugh about themselves and their behavior regarding their sacred cows. I wrote a column one time in the newspaper's faith section where I said that Mormons, when we sing in church, we sound like an anesthetized dairy herd. (laughs) Which is actually true if you compare our music to other churches. These gospel choirs in in African-American churches, they can really sing. And other churches have electric guitars and drums, and they can really get down with Jesus. And by comparison, Mormons, we tend to be much more sedate, a little more reverent slash boring. (laughs) <laughs> well, <laughs> this column ran, and this woman called the newspaper and got me on the phone, and the irony was, as soon as she told me who she was, I recognized her as a woman who had just moved into my LDS ward. But because she was new, she didn't know who Robert Kirby was other than this jerk at the newspaper. So she said, you must not be a Mormon to say these nasty things about us. And I said, no, I'm, I'm LDS. And she said, well, then you must be inactive to be so cruel. I said, no, I go to church a lot, way more than I want to. (laughs) And she said, well, you must be on the verge of apostasy to say this kind of stuff. And by then I was tired of it, and so I told her the truth. I said, actually, no, I'm in your bishopric. (laughs) And she said, oh, and hung up. She called back a few minutes later and and, uh, said, I've read the column again, and I've decided that there is a little bit of humor there. (laughs) Go figure. Uh, Another thing I learned is that you can actually make a sacred cow out of anything. Uh, Researchers in Denmark back in 1994 discovered that on average, men have 4 billion more brain cells than women. I know... Wait, it gets worse. (laughs) I know what you're thinking. It's not collectively. (laughs) It's that our heads are physically bigger than your heads, and it works out to be about 4 billion extra brain cells per man. Now, the research didn't say that men were smarter than women or even that we used brain cells when we thought, only that we had these extra 4 billion. When you consider the billions of brain cells that you have, 4 billion isn't a lot. (laughs) But it is more. So I wrote this column explaining why throughout history, men had needed these extra brain cells to think up really important ways to advance civilization, and that had it been left to the smaller heads of women, hell, we'd probably still be living in the caves. 
And so I wrote, for example, it took a man to think up professional wrestling. <laughs> There's never been a woman alive who was smart enough to think up a way to break some other guy's spine using just her forehead. It had to be a man. And other things that men needed these extra brain cells to think up were impersonating Elvis, <laughs> charging people money to watch lions eat Christians, sacrificing people to stone idols, green alcohol, thermonuclear warfare, monster truck racing. Anyway, it's a big list. <laughs> the paper hadn't been on the street longer than about 20 minutes when we got this fax on University of Utah letterhead from this woman who wrote, You pig. Men are not better than women because they thought up wrestling. What good does that do anyone? <laughs> I get mail like this, and I look around the newsroom because I really want to believe I'm being punked. Uh, that my coworkers are doing this to me because I don't want to have to concede the fact that there are people out there who think like this, who have driver's licenses, and I still have to get home. She went on and said, uh, or grain alcohol, since when does thermonuclear warfare not destroy the planet? Sacrificing people to idols is not only stupid and damaging, but it serves no purpose and didn't help the human race at all. <laughs> for, for people like this, the arms are down and the lights are flashing, but there's no train coming. <laughs> she obviously has a really important agenda. She would consider herself a feminist, and I think every single American ought to be a little bit of that. When you consider how we've treated women down through the generations and we want to argue ourselves that we're a free and equal society, then every single person in it ought to be concerned about somebody in that society being marginalized based on their gender or the color of their skin or some other dumbass reason. But her agenda isn't the problem. It's her focus. She's narrowed it down so tightly that she can't tell when she's being ribbed. And the only way she has of responding to anybody who thinks remotely differently than she does about her agenda is with this fury. And when you do that, you actually become a detriment to your agenda. You don't bring people around to your way of thinking because nobody sees that behavior and says, well, I'm going to be just as clueless as that. <laughs> Another thing I learned <laughs> is that you can actually use people's sacred cows against them. Years ago, when Rocky Anderson first ran for the mayor's office in Salt Lake, the Deseret News, a competing newspaper, sent out this questionnaire to all of the mayoral candidates asking them to respond in writing to things like, had they ever been in jail? Did they have any kids in prison? Had they ever declared bankruptcy? Had they ever had or were they currently having an extramarital affair? Was, oh, was the underwear... They had on at that very moment gender specific to them. I actually made that last one up. It's always interesting to see in the, who in the audience goes, really? I thought this was ridiculous because I happen to believe that everybody's bad. Uh, it's just a question of degree. And so when somebody's running for public office, I don't care about the rest of that stuff. All I want to know is whether or not they can and will do the job that they're asking me to support them in. So I wrote this column about it. <laughs> and I said, um, who cares if Stuart Reed 
once shot a couple of nuns in a ballerina when he was in the fourth grade. Maybe they deserved it. <laughs> we got this letter from the Diocese of Salt Lake City. <laughs> about a week later, and it was sent to my editor at the time, who was a very devout Catholic. I guess they figured they had an in there at the time, and said, Dear James, we are writing in reference to the Robert Kirby column on October 21st. We were very offended by his example of nuns being shot because maybe they deserved it. As Catholic nuns in the state of Utah, we were offended by this remark we know Mr. Kirby hits it all groups, mm. some more or less offensive. Anyway, it goes on at length, and it's signed by a whole bunch of nuns. <laughs> Who knew there were that many in Utah? <laughs> I didn't. Jay sent the letter to me. He goes, look, write them back a letter and explain why, what it is that you do and that you're not upset because they got mad and took you too seriously. So I wrote him back, and I said, dear nuns, <laughs> I didn't know what you called them. <laughs> Dear nuns, James Shelody thoughtfully forwarded to me your letter objecting to a comment in one of my recent columns, specifically that former Salt Lake City mayoral candidate Stuart Reed may have once shot some nuns in ballerinas. As a member of the predominant local faith, I am abysmally ignorant of Catholic tolerances regarding satire. I therefore beg your pardon for making a remark that was intemperate and insensitive. Please know that I'm both sorry and already going to hell for being a Mormon. <laughs> you don't need to be really smart to figure that one out. Specifically, that if you already believe I'm damned, you have no legitimate expectation that I should have to behave. <laughs> one of the hard parts about doing this is that it's very difficult to tell how far you can push it uh, because humor actually operates out there on the edge and even people who share the same sacred cow aren't going to agree on how far you can push that edge uh, that's because your sense of humor really is particular to you you either something either strikes you as funny or it doesn't and there's no way of making something funny when it isn't unless maybe you're drunk. So it makes it very difficult for a person in my situation to know how far you can push it. I'll give you an example of that. Years ago when I first started doing this, I was really going after the LDS culture hard. People would come up to me, and this was at a time when other LDS writers were being disciplined by the church for challenging the church's theology about things. The truth is, I don't really care about what you believe as far as your theology goes. I'm more interested in how you believe it, because how you believe it speaks to how you treat other people. And uh, they would come up to me and say, aren't you afraid of church leaders? Uh, because they'd seen these other LDS writers get excommunicated and disfellowshipped, and they tended to be university professors and philosophers and intellectuals, in other words, smart people. <laughs> And so when they would ask me that question, I knew what they were driving at, you know. If the church is going to do that to them, it's only a matter of time before they get around to doing it to an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I got tired of being asked that question, so I wrote this column about it where I said, I'm not afraid of church leaders because they're old. <laughs> I said, all things being equal, I'm pretty sure I could beat President Hinckley up. <laughs> 
turned it in and went home. I take medication for impulse control. <laughs> it's funny, but it's true, too. Um, but here's the thing. Even when I'm taking my meds, it usually takes about six to eight hours for me to figure out on my own that something was a bad idea. <laughs> so I was actually home in bed asleep when my eyes popped open and I thought, crap. <laughs> I started thinking then, you know, if there's a place in the world where you shouldn't say you can beat up President Hinckley, it's probably Utah. <laughs> but I just done it in the biggest newspaper in the state. So when I went back to work the next day, I parked down Main Street and looked to see if the Tribune was on fire. <laughs> it wasn't, so I went in and sat at my desk and I waited for this onslaught of of outrage uh, for what I admit was a fairly egregious column. Uh, and I waited and I waited and nothing happened. Not a single phone call, email, fax, nothing. Just dead silence. I got a little worried then, thought maybe they're not reading. <laughs> turns out, though, they were just in shock. <laughs> I got... Um, I was very ecumenical when I wrote this column. I want you to know that. I also said I could beat up the Pope. Mother <laughs> Teresa couldn't take a punch. Billy Graham was sick. Jerry Falwell was kind of short and dumpy. So really, why would anybody be afraid of church leaders? Um, I didn't hear from any of those other people. And I didn't hear anything. I mean, it was just dead silence. And you compare that total lack of response to this pretty confrontational column to the response I got two weeks later when I wrote another column in the face section explaining how you can tell the difference between God and Satan based on the types of pets they had. <laughs> I said, God has this really, dog, really cool dog named Vern. Vern's a mutt. God doesn't believe in pure breeds. And Satan, on the other hand, Satan has a cat. <laughs> and I got 500 letters from cats. <laughs> It came from all over the United States. People sent me pictures of their cats, poetry that they'd written about cats. Somebody sent me a photocopy of their cat's butt. And this magic marker arrow pointing in the middle of it. This is you. And I looked at this nail and I thought, what the hell is the matter with these people? I said I could beat up President Hinckley. Nobody says a word. I write this really stupid thing about cats and everybody comes unglued. <laughs> Here's an example of idiot safari. I got a letter from a guy in a Baptist seminary in Chattanooga, Tennessee, who wrote to tell me that God does not have a dog named Vern. <laughs> so I wrote him back and I said, well, I guess it all depends on how you interpret the Bible. <laughs> And he writes back and he says, well, I've read the Bible like 20 times. There's nothing in there about a dog named Vern. <laughs> so I wrote him back and I said, okay, maybe it's in the Book of Mormon. <laughs> and back comes this letter. Oh, you're one of those. <laughs> one of the difficult parts about lampooning an organization that operates on an eternal timeline is that five months to them is like tomorrow. So when I got a call from my stake president 
and who said, Robert, I need to talk to you. I had no idea what it was for. I'd already done some other stuff. So I went down to talk to him, and he was over on the not smiling side of the desk. <laughs> and he said, Robert, you wrote a column several months ago wherein you said you could beat up our prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley. And I said, yeah, I know, I can. <laughs> That's the cool part about humor is when you pitch it at someone from an angle that they're not used to getting it from, you can actually watch their brain and their face have a race. <laughs> he said, well, be that as it may. <laughs> Don't you think that's a little irreverent? And I said, well, maybe a little. And uh, he said, well, I got a letter here from one of the brethren who thinks it's a lot and wanted me to talk to you and see if we could get you to tone it down just a little bit. I said, yeah, I, I could do that. I actually ended up in this telephone conversation slash interview with this general authority. And I'm not going to tell you who it was. Oh. Guess! Jeez! <laughs> I'm not saying anything. Anyway, he explained why he thought this particular column had crossed the line, and would I, as a personal favor to him, be willing to cut it back just a little bit? And I said, yeah, I can do that. And I know that bothers some people that I would let Church leaders tell me, you know, what I could or couldn't write. Bothered the hell out of the Tribune when I told the editors there what was going on. They all had this huge meeting in the Shark Tank, and you could hear them in there yelling about the First Amendment and how no writer worth his salt would ever allow anyone to tell him what he could or couldn't write. And this was a um, freedom of speech issue that we were going to fight all the way to the halls of the Supreme Court. Anybody who actually believes that crap has never been married. <laughs> yeah, I got people in my life who can tell me to shut up. If I'm not taking my meds, I better listen to them. <laughs> so I went home thinking, it's entirely possible that I offended President Hinckley. He seemed like a man with a pretty good sense of humor, but the truth is you never really know. So I wrote him a letter of apology. I said, Dear President Hinckley, I'm sorry I said I could beat you up. <laughs> In my defense, I did not say that I wanted to. I was simply trying to make a joke. I hope you understand that it's the nature of my job at Salt Lake Tribune to do this sort of thing. However, if you were offended, I, too, I do apologize and will try to do a little bit better in the future. P.S. I think I can still beat up the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> Turn that in and... Or I sent that off and... Uh, I figured that, that's the end of it. And I knew it was the end of it because, hell, I go to church. I know when you apologize to religious leaders, they're under major obligation to forgive you. <laughs> it's not like the police department. <laughs> so I thought that'd be the end of it. But a couple weeks later, I went out to the mailbox, and in there was this envelope from the office of the First Presidency. I've been making fun of Mormons now for 20 years, and that's the only time that I have ever been in all of that time truly terrified. Because I'm standing by my mailbox looking at this envelope. I don't even open it. All I can think of for like 30 minutes is, 
damn, I'm going to Africa. <laughs> it happened just like this before. <laughs> well, I finally got the nerve to open it up. It uh, was a letter from President Hinckley's executive secretary, which really just ratcheted up my estimation of, of President Hinckley because if you're going to be the spiritual leader of millions of people, you don't personally correspond with an idiot. <laughs> you delegate that. <laughs> and he did. And uh, President Hinckley's executive secretary had a number of things to say about me, but this was the important one. I have discussed this matter with the president. He wishes me to assure you that he is not offended. Good luck. Have fun. I get called in now. I take a copy of this letter with me. Uh, the original is actually in a safety deposit box. In a non-church-owned bank. You know, one, it was one thing to write this stuff in the paper, but it was another thing to say it out loud to people. And it was really interesting how effective it was as a way of keeping people I didn't like away from me. <laughs> uh, I worked at the church's family history center for a number of years as a volunteer. Uh, this was in the Utah County um, branch, and... People who come in to do their genealogy, they tend to be really serious about it, you know, and they're really committed, which is good, but they aren't really, they're not really ready for me. <laughs> when they get there, they'd come in, they'd bring us, you know, this information, they said, we need to get this ready to submit to the temple, can you help us put it on a disc so we can do that? And uh, I'd say, yeah, I, I can help you, that's why I'm here. Uh, but you're sure everybody on this in this information is passed on because this is work for the dead. And if we have to kill them for you, it costs extra. <laughs> and it was always interesting to watch them try to catch up. <laughs> you know, it's back to the old thing way. If you keep a perfectly straight face, you know, you could say, virtually anything, and there'll be that lag time where they'll either believe you or trying to figure out whether they should believe you. And usually they'd say, no, they're already dead. <laughs> and once I, once I keyed into the fact that they were a relatively humorless bunch, um, I started doing other things. I put a notice on the bulletin board down there. Uh, it was very official looking, and, uh, and the notice said, Attention library patrons, beginning in the year 2001. The church will no longer do temple work for the French. <laughs> <laughs> and people would come in, and they'd look at the bulletin board, and nothing had ever been put up there before that was like-minded. So they'd just look at that and say, Oh my gosh, first the Jews, now the French. <laughs> what are we going to do? And they had, eventually the librarian came uh, back from vacation, saw it, ripped it down. <laughs> she figured out it wasn't one of the brethren who put it up there. And they had this big investigation trying to figure out who would do that, and naturally it got to me. And one of my co-workers came up to me and said, you know, that was a, a really sacrilegious thing to do. 
And I said, yeah, I know, well, it's still kind of funny, right? And he said, well, I don't, I don't really think so. And I said, yeah, no, that's the funny part. <laughs> so this kind of humor, I mean, if you're willing to take the lumps for it, can be really handy because it, it's amazing how it'll get you out of a lot of work. <laughs> All right, questions? Yeah. Where did you get your sense of humor from? I'm talking about your mom, your dad, your family. Where, where, where did you get it from? His wife. <laughs> your dad, the cop? No. No, no, don't Not say that. Not my father, no. Um, from the time I was a little kid, I suffered from depression and attention deficit disorder. And by the time I was 21, I'd lived in 19 homes. My father was... Uh, criminal investigator for the federal government, and we moved constantly. And so I was always the new kid at school, and when you're the new kid at school, that stuff doesn't get tracked. You're always bouncing, and, and all anybody ever knew was that I was a difficult kid. Well, humor was kind of my way, because I was a kid, I couldn't have beer. Um, humor was the way that I kind of medicated myself against the world, and I developed this left-handed way of looking at things. And later when I, you know, became an adult and found out that there was a market for it, I used it. <laughs> it's not always appreciated. I'll tell you one thing. You might like reading my column, but you would not want to be my boss. <laughs> Other questions? Yes, in the back. How long have you been doing this for now? <laughs> I've been doing it for the Tribune since 1994. Wow. All right. Once a week, so that's... Three times a week. Mm -hmm. All right, so we're considerably in excess of several thousand. thousand. Yeah. Articles. Are we in any danger of running out of things to make fun about Mormons? No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Whenever I have writer's block, I just go to church. <laughs> <laughs> Tonight. Well, I've seen how Holbrook do Mark Twain. Yeah. He's very good at it. And you're a worthy disciple. <laughs> well, thanks. That's blasphemy, by the way. <laughs> but I appreciate it. That's all right. Other questions? In the very back? What was your favorite column that you wrote? That's like asking which of your kids is the ugliest. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I have a lot of them. I like the one that I wrote about my 13 particles of faith. I got this state president who called me in about saying I could beat up President Hinckley. Took a really authoritarian view of what I was I was doing. And he actually had a subscription to the Tribune sent to the stake offices so he could monitor me. And he would call me in periodically, and the, he never really understood that I was actually getting off on this. Uh, I wrote a column one time when they, there was a huge uproar about um, uh, the LDS Church doing temple work for the dead, you know, baptizing the dead. And uh, people were fairly insulting about it, or they were, you know, they felt offended. So I wrote a column explaining, hey, look, I work at the Family History Center. If you're bothered because we baptized one of your ancestors, send me 200 bucks and I will commit a sin 
in proxy for them and have them um, excommunicated. <laughs> for the dead. So anyway, this excommunication for the dead column was one of the things that set off his alarm bells. <laughs> he hauled me back in. And we would have these conversations, and I think it frustrated him that I wasn't more repentant uh, about it. But I, I wrote I wrote a column one time where uh, I rewrote the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments for Generation X. And Dr. Laura Schlesinger actually read them on her radio show, which I thought was really interesting. But when I wrote 13 Particles of Faith, uh, the stake president called me in and said, look, you know, you got to stop doing this because stuff that comes from above is really sacred. And he, you know, quoted me DNC 6364 about how you shouldn't do this. And I said, well, virtually everything comes from above. So what can I and can I not make fun of? And why are you getting upset about me rewriting the Articles of Faith when you didn't say anything about me rewriting the Ten Commandments? One was written by the finger of God, and the other was written as a press release. <laughs> and he said, I don't know. So we had some interesting um, discussions, and when he was released as my state president, a new one came in. He canceled the subscription to the Tribune and said, I don't care what you do. Other questions? What column did you get the most flack for? Barbershop singers. Barbershop quartets had their big convention in Salt Lake City, and I made fun of them uh, because I hate it. <laughs> they would not shut up. There were thousands of them in Salt Lake, and they would sing on tracks and sing on street corners, and if you looked at them cross-eyed, they'd get together and start harmonizing. <laughs> and so I made fun of them, and thousands of them called the mayor's office in Salt Lake. I had a news crew in my front yard with a camera <laughs> wanting to know if I had planned on apologizing to them. I said, no, I didn't. Uh, so that was probably the one that got the most reaction. And it, it's really amazing what will set people off. You write something totally tongue-in-cheek, and they'll take it head up, but... Does your wife appreciate your sense of humor? Not always. <laughs> but I'm afraid of her, so I try to be a little careful. Yes. Is, it, is it hard work for you to write your columns? No. No? It's uh, natural? It's, yeah, just... I've been doing it for so long, I can actually think in 600-word increments. <laughs> so if I'm sitting in church and somebody gets up there and says something, and I think, well, that's stupid, <laughs> I'll start pounding out 600 words in my head uh, or something like that. You see something on the street or you talk to people, and these ideas will form like that. Um, but like I said, sometimes I do... I struggle to, to find something to write about, and then I just go to church. Yeah. Most people have something funny that happens to them on their mission. I know you had a good thing you met your <laughs> wife. You, you must have a funny story about your mission. At the end of my mission, I was not, as you probably understand by now, a good missionary. I wasn't really cut out for a mission environment. But the last six months of my mission was really the golden time for me because the mission president finally understood that 
hey, if we leave Elder Kirby alone, he'll actually obey the rules. Uh, so he sent me to this little town where it was just me and this new companion from the States. And, and uh, we would knock on doors and people would call us names and throw things at us and slam the doors in our faces. I had a dog at the time. Uh, a really big dog. We weren't supposed to have pets, but I had one. <laughs> one day, uh, and I understood why people treated us like this, because we would knock on their doors, ask them if they were interested in us, and if they weren't, we weren't interested in them, and we left, and that was the only contact they had with Mormons until the next set of missionaries came along and did the exact same thing. So to them, we were just these tall, rich, blonde North American kids who'd come down to bother them about Jesus. And they just considered us a nuisance. And so it's easy to, one of the first things you do when you're trying to dismiss somebody is reduce them to just one thing. When you're going to reduce them as, ah, it's just the Mormons again. Uh, it's that much easier to dismiss them. And when you can dismiss them, it, the next step is, hey, you can abuse them too. One day uh, I was bored at not having anybody to talk to, so I put a pair of gym shorts on my dog. <laughs> His name was Lurch, and I put a white shirt and a necktie on him. <laughs> and a name tag, and he looked fabulous. <laughs> and I, t I told my companion, I said, come on, we're going to work. And he was mortified. He said, you're not really going to take the dog outside dressed up like that, are you? And I said, why not? And he said something that I ever forgot. He said, what if the mission president sees us? And I said, the mission president? God's watching us right now. <laughs> what the hell are you worried about the mission president for? Didn't you know lightning could come inside? <laughs> and we went to work, and it was great. Um, you knock on, we'd knock on the doors. Actually, it was just me and Lurch. <laughs> My companion wouldn't do it. He'd wait on the corner. Knock on the door, and people would come to it, and they'd fling the door open, and you could read their minds. I mean, they'd just stand there, and you could watch them think, almost like the words were going across <laughs> on their forehead. You know, the Mormons are here, damn it. There's two bikes, and there's two more. One of them's a dog. <laughs> And they knew something wasn't right, but they didn't want to look stupid by pointing it out. So they wait for me to explain, and I never did. I could talk to them as long as I wanted. You get down to the end of the street, and there'd be all these heads stuck out of doors. What, what is that? Now, we did that for a couple of weeks. We eventually stopped doing it because my companions started running out of white shirts. <laughs> Turns out there's a reason why dogs don't wear them. <laughs> and we never converted anybody because of lurch, but something else really cool happened, and that was that after about a week, people stopped calling us names, and they stopped throwing things at us. And when they heard we were in the neighborhood, they would actually come out and talk to us because... We had stopped being that stereotypical thing they thought we were. And suddenly now, yeah, we might be insane, but at least now we're interesting. <laughs> and most of the time, that's the best you can hope for. And uh, this dog thing taught me a valuable lesson about the priesthood. So, 
Well, that was when the assistants to the president found out we were doing it. They actually got in the only mission car we had, drove all the way out to San Jose, burst into our apartment, and said, you got to stop doing this thing with the dog because you're giving people the wrong idea about the church. And it says in the missionary handbook, you're not supposed to have pets, so you have to get rid of that dog. And I said, or what? They didn't have an or what. <laughs> so they left and I kept the dog. And there's the true power of the priesthood. <laughs> or what? So what country was this? Uruguay. Uruguay. Oh, Uruguay. Oh. Have you ever written anything you regret? Oh, yeah. You bet. Years ago, there was a program running around the United States about getting your pilot's license. And they were offering free pilot's lessons. And so I went out to the airport and I took a pilot's lesson. I actually got to fly a plane around uh, the Salt Lake Valley. Came back and wrote a column about how you should not let people who are stupid have pilot's licenses. Because they'll land on the freeway, they'll fly under bridges, they'll bash into mountains and crash into buildings. That column ran the morning of 9-11. Yeah. I tell myself if the CIA couldn't see that coming, there's no reason I should have. But it's all about timing. And so, yeah, that's a column I regret. Yeah. How much of your stuff is not LDS-centric? Um, I write two days a week, um, just regular <coughs> observations on life. And uh, Saturday, it's in the faith section. So I usually write about either LDS culture or some issue of faith or something like that. I try to cut everybody some slack. I don't make fun of church ordinances, whether they're mine or another churches. I don't make fun of Catholic Mass, and I don't make fun of temple work or, or that sort of thing. But the behavior, yeah, that's fair game. The way you behave uh, puts you in my yard, yeah. <laughs> Over the years, obviously you've concluded that you've got plenty of low-hanging fruit and uh, not in any danger of running out of an orchard. But <laughs> but do you ever think about that at night? You know, what, what if people just get desensitized to my humor and uh, stop paying attention to me? Hasn't seemed to work. So <laughs> there were a lot of really interesting things as I did this. Um, I expected to offend a certain amount of people. The trick isn't in, in offending people, it's offending the right ones. Um, people like my mom. Um, and those are the people that I really want to shake up because the, typically for me, they're the people who don't, who make it hard for people like me in church. Uh, only about 40% of Mormons in the United States attend church regularly. And that's a big chunk of Mormons who aren't going to church. Um, one of my friends who's a democ uh, statistician at BYU told me about a survey that they did back in the 80s asking inactive Mormons why they didn't go to church, and theology was not the number one issue. It was that they didn't feel welcome or they didn't feel part of that ward or branch wherever they lived. And so there's a lot of correlation going on out there among members that excludes Mormons who aren't correlatable. <laughs> and uh, so no I think there's always a market for going after the smug or the self-righteous or the people who don't take, or take themselves far too seriously I got an email from a woman 
just before we came down here. Um, and occasionally I'll get emails from people that really stopped me in my tracks. And she said to me, in three hours I'm getting baptized as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. And I want you to know that a big part of it was because of you. Because you taught me that I can be myself in this culture and I don't have to change in order to be a member. And yeah, that stuff like that lets me know that, um, that I still have a place here. One of the other things I learned was when I first started doing this, it was interesting where the angry male came from. The first two or three years, a big chunk of it came out of Southern California. Go figure. I thought Utah Mormons would be the ones that were most offended. But it wasn't so. I got it from Southern California, Seattle, and Washington, D.C. This stuff got faxed everywhere. Five kinds of Mormons went worldwide in about five kinds of minutes. Because Mormons were just hungry for that kind of observation about the culture. And then later, when the internet came along, it went everywhere even faster. I've noticed some of your most, for me, some of your most thought-provoking columns arise out of general conference. <laughs> um, there's always this um, run-up time to general conference where everybody starts speculating what's going to happen. You know, what's going to be the next big announcement? You know, are we going to give women the priesthood and women wearing pants to church and that sort of thing. It's amazing what will rivet our attention, um, in large part because we don't have anything else going on. <laughs> uh, and so it's easy to find stuff like that to write about. Church security threw me out of the conference center one time um, because I was eating M&Ms during conference. <laughs> and so that... They, they know to watch for me, I guess, when I go there. Yes? Do you have some favorite targets within our culture or some things that are especially easy to pick on? First one that comes to mind is high priest group. <laughs> I, I don't know why God lets the boring ones live as long as he does. <laughs> but that's the way it seems to work out in high priest group. But yeah, I like, also like writing about uh, kids in church because I have so many memories of my father trying to get me to behave in church. Um, what else? You know, I, like, I recently insisted that the church call me as a Relief Society president. <laughs> well, they haven't, but I'd do it if they asked. And I, when that column ran, I got like 15 offers to be Relief Society president <laughs> in some ward somewhere. And the Relief Society president in my ward came up and said, you don't really want this job. You don't know how much work there is. And I said, hey, I can delegate or I'm lazy. I don't know. I get those two mixed up quite a bit. Jan had a question, I think. Oh, sorry. Um, I was just wondering, you, your source of humor is, is the church, but if you could kind of reformulate um, like a church meeting, what would Robert Kirby's ward look like? Uh, I have no idea why I'd even want to do that. Um, there's nothing particularly wrong with the way that the, you know, the meetings run. It's that, for me, it's, it's frustrating because we take the greatest story that was ever told and parlay it into something that puts people to sleep. 
And I don't know how we, we do that, but we do. And uh, that's the frustrating part for me. Give us something new or something interesting or a different way to think about it. You said you'd been recently released from a position you'd had for a while, and that was when you were yeah. lobbying for the release society president. Have you gotten another calling nope. yet? Nope. Oh. <laughs> Still waiting. There's only so many things that uh, they'll let me do. <laughs> uh, and working with the young adults is not one of them. Uh, <laughs> I've been an elders quorum president before. They're not going to let me do that. They made me a high priest just to get me out of there. Um that sort of thing. So, no, they haven't, but I imagine they'll get around to it. Yeah. Um, Jay Golden Kimball was a lightning rod in his time. Do you identify with Jay Golden Kimball? Do you see any similarities? I swear more than he does. <laughs> do you think you do? Oh, yeah, I know I do. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Jim Kimball, who was doing that Jay Golden on the road thing, had mm-hmm. uh, done a lot of research about Jay Golden, um, and we got together and we're talking about it one time, and he said, yeah, you do swear more than he did. Here's my favorite Jay Golden Kimball story you'll never see printed. Lamb's Cafe down on Main Street in Salt Lake used to be a big watering hole for church um, workers and that sort of thing. It's the oldest um, consistently running restaurant in Salt Lake. And the story goes is that Jay Golden Kimball and um, I'm trying to think of the prophet's name. Heber J. Grant. Heber J. Grant. We're in the men's restroom um, <coughs> taking care of some personal business, both of them. And this guy walked in and said, hey, D- uh, Golden, how you doing? And Golden said, this is what I've heard from Jim Kimball, said, well, I can't pee. But I'm standing here next to the prophet of God, and I notice he can't pee either, so I guess I'm doing all right. <laughs> My favorite Mormon joke, and this was told to me by a black highway patrolman who thought it was hilarious. He said, you know why crows are black? Well, I said, no, I don't. He said, because they wouldn't eat the crickets. <laughs> questions I gotta tell you this is a first I've never had one of my speeches begun with a prayer so I gotta tell you that is a first thank you very much You've been listening to the Dialogue Journal podcast series. We'd like to thank our guests today. For more Dialogue podcasts or to comment on this one, please visit dialoguejournal.com. Thank you.